You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Welcome. Phyllis Curat served as vice chair of the Parliament of the World's Religions and was the creator of the inaugural Women's Assembly of the Body in Salt Lake City in 2015. She's the author of three books on modern witchcraft and goddess spirituality and wrote her memoir, Book of Shadows, in an effort to dispel misconceptions about witches. Take a listen. Is one of America's first public Wiccan priestesses way back in the very early 80s. And Wicca is one of the fastest growing spiritualists in the United States right now, and it's growing very rapidly in England, which is really its root where, well, its more modern root. And as it's matured, it sort of went public in 1950 with the repeal of the anti-witchcraft laws in England. And there are a million public practitioners in the United States now, which is extraordinary because there were a few hundred when I started uh, 40 years ago. It is the modern revival of one of the Euro-Indigenous traditions. The word Wicca and the word Witcha, the word witch, mm. that scary, spooky word, W-I-T-C-H, actually comes from Witcha, W-I-C-C-E, which is about 5,000 years old. It was Its roots are in the Proto-Indo-European, which is very interesting. So it, it comes from that, that current of culture, which was, it was one of the largest in language systems at that time. So it is in fact rooted in the shamanism of old Europe and about 500 AD, it migrated from the Indo-Aryan, it had been migrating into Europe and it migrated from Europe to Great Britain. It wasn't Great Britain at the time, but to the British Isles and with the Anglo-Saxons when they crossed the channel and it put down roots and it became one of, not the only, but one of the indigenous traditions in Britain. Along with Celtic stuff. And- exactly. And some Nordic, because you know, there's all this cross-pollinization right. and movement and trade and, and Germanic. There's the tons right, of, of influence and mobility. In the late 1400s, the witch craze began. Essentially, it was a migration of the persecutions of Jews who had essentially been mostly either forcibly converted or wiped out or moved out of and Europe. And that pool of resources had dried up. And the attacks were turned on the remnants of the indigenous traditions in Europe, but most specifically on women. Sorry, in a sense, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, because you were saying that the persons to persecute had dried up, so they turned their attention to someone else. Yes, it's quite It's really fascinating, because, I mean, literally, historically, as the Inquisition was ending in, in Spain in the late 1400s, in 1498, Pope Innocent VIII, issued a papal edict basically authorizing use of torture to elicit confessions of witchcraft. And it was it was largely, we call it the women's holocaust because it was largely directed at women, although not exclusively. Why? Well, and there are a couple of interesting theories and some reasons, but in part because they were looking for sources of wealth and women had inherited quite a bit of property and wealth and resources after the Crusades. They had been managing farms, they'd been managing estates, they'd inherited property. And it was during that period that all, very much like what's happened under radical Islam and Islamists and Sharia, it was a disenfranchisement of women utterly. So it was during that period that women became chattel, they became the property of their husbands or their brothers and whoever. They were no longer allowed to inherit property. They were not allowed to receive an education. They couldn't leave the house. Does it all sound familiar? They could be married off and they were for dowry, things of that sort. And they could no longer be midwives or healers or wise women 
witcha meant a wise one, a seer. That's the root of the word. That's what it meant. So they could no longer practice the indigenous traditions, which women had played a central role, an equal role and a central role. So it was really, truly the women's Holocaust. Figures are, were inflated 30, 40 years ago because there wasn't really good academic research. Now there is probably between 60 and 100,000, mostly predominantly women throughout Europe. And it went on for like 300 years. Started 1498. They've never rescinded, just like they never rescinded the doctrine of discovery, which is what gave them what gave the colonizers the right. They never rescinded the edict for the use of torture. They never did away with the office of the Inquisition. And it did tremendous damage to the status of women that we're still living with. We're still living with it. So at the turn of the century, in the 19th century, coming on the heels of British imperialism and the movement into Egypt, there was this sort of flourishing of spiritualism and ceremonial magic, very Abrahamic. There was the Kabbalistic wisdom. And Yeats, the poet Yeats, was part of this sort of whole sort of movement of trying to find a different, a non-Abrahamic approach that had a divine feminine. I can, it sounds like it's also, I mean, especially talking to, you know, three Native American elders, it sounds like in a certain way in resonance with the understanding that they have. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And ultimately going through this evolutionary period. So in the fifties, it it sort of went public. And in the eighties, in the seventies, sixties, seventies, it came to America. It got picked up by a bunch of old hippies and people seeking something else, another way of experiencing the divine. And in the eighties, people like myself, women like myself, I mean, I wasn't seeking a spiritual home, but the goddess literally tapped me on the shoulder And I was led to this group of women practicing. I didn't know what they were doing. I mean, I came from a humanist family of social justice activists. My father was a union organizer. My mother was active in the civil rights movement in the 1930s. I was aware of my Jewish and my Nordic background, but not religious. But it it opened my eyes. And it was very feminist. And I talked about the goddess, and I didn't know what they were discussing. And they worked in a circle. And almost immediately... I had the good fortune to be brought into the work of Dr. Michael Horner, who was doing core shamanism. He was an anthropologist that came back from the Amazon and said, we should do this. And some then friends of mine were students of his and said, "This, we should do this. And they started practicing. And the essence of it was that across the globe, indigenous peoples have had common shared practices. They honor the four directions, sun above, the earth below. They work with the spirits of place, with the land. They understand the earth as their mother. The divine is, yes, maybe in some, maybe creator and and beyond knowing, a mystery beyond knowing, but is also knowable through the world itself in which we live, that the world itself, I would use the word, embodies divine, that all of creation is this manifestation, this expression of it. And that if we pay attention, everything we need to know will be revealed to us by the world in which we live, by this divine world in which we live, this holy and fully embodied natural world in which we live. And within us, that, we're, that we are nature too. I mean, this is not the Western model, right? Because we have a consciousness we are superior to, we are separate from. God left us a rule book and gave us dominion over the earth and we're superior. And we still hear that, right? We will be stewards of and we will take it, but not that we are of mm. the earth. And ultimately, I wove together the core shamanic practices of honoring, which were already, I recognized at the heart of what was being done in 
Wicca, but the essence of it, if you stripped away all the fancy language and the ceremonial hoo-ha, the Abrahamic overlay, it was shamanism. It was the essence, it contained within it, the essential forms of ancestral indigenous wisdom traditions of Europe. And now there's been a great movement and a lot of academic research to try to retrieve the actual the language, the rights, the customs of Scandinavia, of Romania, of France, of Ireland, because indigenous peoples are always informed by you know, their cultures are formed out of the specific place. But the reality is that we're diasporic. So my interest has been in the universal truths that are shared. And the more you practice, the simpler it gets the more you find you have in common with other wisdom traditions, other indigenous peoples, it's not their way, but you recognize in each other the same essential practices and the same essential teachers, in a sense, the same, and the same relationship emerges out of it. And it's one of reverence and gratitude and humility and rediscovering how to live according to the, the spiritual laws that, that nature embodies for us. What I'm hearing and what you describe in the shamanic thing and sort of the balance of all things and the the oppression of women as exactly uh, half right. of the human, the, the beings on the world becomes particularly egregious. I mean, it becomes just ridiculous. And The and, essence of, of nature is about balance and right. reciprocity and relationship and connection, interconnectedness. And if you dehumanize and desacralize half of humanity, you've lost half your soul, you've lost half of your wisdom, you've lost half of your heart. You've lost half of your own humanity, mm-hmm. and the world is excruciatingly out of balance. So, and it sounds like, I mean, it's on, on the, and then I'll like expand on this, but it sounds like, I mean, or tell me what you think, but it sounds like on the one hand, it's damaging to women, but on the other hand, it's damaging to their perpetrators yeah. because they're left out of balance, and then they're left damaging. They are everything. damaged themselves. Damaged themselves. Uh, and it's, and it's just, it becomes a distorted masculinity, right? Since we're talking about climate change. So maybe yeah. could you, cause that's kind of what you were talking about last night. I I, in part I was that, I mean, I, I brought it in through the, this argument that the fact is that most of the religions of the world, including Hinduism, which has goddesses and Buddhism, which it doesn't conceptualize deity in anthropomorphic terms or right. It's not deist, mm-hmm. but has because of the, you know, because of the people, because of the, I would say the pre-existing indigenous traditions has, you know, the Taras and, Right. But you um, got to look hard to find them. Ah, right. <laughs> well, all of the religions practiced by women, but dominated by men, controlled by men, theorized and prophesized and articulated and enforced by men. So they're missing half of everything. And if it was simply a matter of missing it, that would be bad enough. But it, it has become one of the tra- one of the many tragedies. Right? Is that in the subjugation of women, in losing half of our soul and half of our wisdom and half of our love and half of our divinity, that religions have become perpetrators of that separation and that woundedness. And you mentioned last night a list of things that had to stop and people were saying, can you... Yeah. share those again? Because that was so... Or at least what you remember. Yeah, no, it's the litany of horror that breaks my heart. And most of these are manifestations of this religious subjugation. One in three women in the broad category, one in three women in the world is going to be the victim of sexual violence. That's a third of all women. 700 million women, now women, were married off as little girls, basically sold into into sexual slavery with usually older men. 700 million 
staggering. 140 million women have have been subjected to genital mutilation. And every year, 20,000 women are murdered in honor killings, so-called honor killings. These are all justified by religion. And there's no place for that in religion. That's not religion. That's perverse gender politics. It's got nothing to do with religion. Religion is just the opposite. And it's time for religious leaders then to own that. And and I was going to ask you also, I mean, two life-threatening on a global scale are nuclear weapons and climate change. And both of them, I wonder but what you think, but it seems like the the very fact that they're both looming dangers and seems like people haven't woken up. It's almost rooted in the imbalance you're talking about. It's absolutely the I mean they're you know they're great academics to blah 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 blah. The fact of the matter is, right, that God gave man dominion over the earth and women and animals and everything and left. And from that moment on a wound opened in our souls, right? The sacred was elsewhere. And we were in charge, men were in charge. And this long, inexorable descent into the abyss of that separation. When I look at this culture, that's what it is. So we separated ourselves from the sacred, put it someplace else. We separated ourselves from the earth, said it was just inanimate matter and devoid of any divinity or value. We separated ourselves in genders. And you literally see that in the most fundamentalist and conservative versions of all of the faiths, all of them, mm-hmm. not, you know, men are here, women are there. You don't mix and men are in charge. So this wound opened a long time ago. And the question now is how we heal it and the abuse of women and the separation from women and the abuse of the earth and the separation from the earth are the, the two sides of the same coin. They're, the same symptoms of the same separation. From a purely practical point of view, you will never solve these problems that have been created by a certain mindset. Einstein said it, that you can't solve a problem with the same frame of reference, the same perspective, the same mental point of view that created the problem. Can't be done. So you need a new, a fresh, a different perspective. I know some feminists would argue that I'm being an essentialist, but the fact of the matter is that whether it's by nature or by nurture, women have been confined to the realm of relationship and nurturance and taking care of babies. I mean, now we're a little bit liberated. We get to have careers. We get to have educations. We can have a bank account, you know. But nonetheless, our expertise for thousands of years has been in the area of relationship and nourishing and care and connection and love in the face of horror and damage. So all the things that we have, whether by nature or by nurture or by imprisonment, we have them. And I think they are very much what's needed to reset the balance, to reestablish the balance. And as part of reestablishing this connection and in affording that opportunity, I think it's a healing for men. I think patriarchy is phenomenally damaging to men. And isolating. Devastating. Awful. I mean, I, you know, I'm a very, I was trained as a lawyer and, and a lot of emotional suppression. And I have to, so I'm, I'm very empathetic with the male dilemma because I recognize it in myself. It's the missing half of everything and we need it. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.